So we are wrapping up as a church a, a series in the book of Jude, which we've highlighted for you. It's a hard book to find. It's right before the book of Revelation. So you're welcome to try to find it in these coming moments before we read some of the verses from Jude. But since we're finishing it out, let me wrap it up for you for those who haven't heard the previous sermons. We believe that Jude is probably the brother of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing a letter to people that are similar to you and I. He's writing a, a letter to a group of Christians. And he's, and he's talking about that in the introduction. He says, you're beloved by God. You're kept for Jesus Christ. He says, oh, I would love to write to you about the glories of the gospel and God's love. But he says, I feel compelled to write you a different letter. He says, I feel compelled to tell you that you must contend for the faith that has been passed down to you because there are people that are creeping into the church who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They are denying the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so Jude says, uh, due to the extreme situation that you're living in, I'm going to write you a letter to help you understand how you need to contend for this faith that's been passed down to you. And we've highlighted in recent weeks how we're in a similar situation. We are a group of Christians who has gathered together. And the last thing we ever want to have happen to Northgate Church is that such perversions of the gospel would creep into our church or into our hearts. And so as we've worked our way through the book of Jude, we've said, you know what, I'm going to apply this to my own heart. I don't want any ungodliness to creep into my heart. I don't want my heart in any way to pervert the grace of God. And so we sort of, as we went through it, we gave ourselves a list of things not to do so that these things won't creep into our hearts. We said, let's not defile the flesh. Let's not reject authority. Let's not walk in the way of Cain. Let's not be like a fruitless tree. Let's not be like a waterless cloud. And we've elaborated on those things throughout the last few weeks. But last week we said, well, Jude also says what, tells us what to do in the positive. He says you should keep yourself in the love of God. You should build up your faith. You should pray. You should wait on the Lord. And so you get to the end of the book of Jude and you've got some, uh, here's what you, here's, do not do this and, and do, do this. And what Jude doesn't want for you to do is for you to walk away from his letter with a list of do's and don'ts in your mind. Because that's a, an unfair but popular mischaracterization of Christianity. There are some people that say that all Christianity is is a list of do's and don'ts. And they might say, and I've listened to you preach the last couple weeks, and all you do is give a bunch of list of do's and don'ts. So to be a Christian is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Well, I think that is an unfair summary. And it's kind of like this. If I had to illustrate it, I would say, if you watched me parent for a week, you might walk away from watching me parent for a week and say, oh, I see what it means to be a child of Matt. It means a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. He's constantly just telling his children to do this and not to do that. So to be a child of Matt must just mean a whole bunch of list of do's and don'ts. And I would say, that's not fair. That's not a fair summary. Because what it means to be a child in my family is to be loved and treasured and valued and protected and there are certainly ways in which I try to build up my children by helping them have some boundaries to understand what they should do and shouldn't do, but you shouldn't summarize what it is to be in my family that way. That wouldn't be fair. And in the same way, it's not a fair summary of Christianity. And so as we look to the book of Jude, as he's closing out, he's like, let's not let do's and don'ts be our takeaway from the book of Jude, but let's turn our attention to God. And so in the last two verses in the book, he says, okay, now... That's how he starts the next section. He says, now, and he's trying to get your attention. He's saying, now, okay, you've heard all the do's and don'ts, but now, now, I want your attention. We're shifting gears. And it says, now, to him, 
Now to him. You see, what he's done in the book so far is he said, okay, let's talk about them. Them. The them are these false teachers, these people that are creeping in, these people that are perverting the gospel. He's saying, don't be like them. And he said, now you, you need to build up your faith. You need to pray. You need to wait. But Jude's saying, now listen, we're done with that. We're not talking about them, and we're not talking about you this morning. We're talking about him. So he's getting our attention. He's saying, things are changing now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now to him. Now to him. I don't know if you remember uh, Christianity back in the early 2000s. But the most popular book in Christianity back in the early 2000s was a book called The Purpose Driven Life, written by Rick Warren. I read it back in the early 2000s, and it had a a real significant impact on my life, on my ministry, and I'm indebted to um, Rick Warren and the concepts in this book. It became a, a bestseller. It was really trending just in America in general. It has since been sold 50 million copies, it's in 85 languages. What I want to do for you is remind you what the first four words of this book is. You see, this book's been picked up by thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have said, oh, I want purpose in my life. I need purpose. And they picked up this book, and here are the first words that Rick Warren wrote to them. It's not about you. It's the first sentence. It's not about you. I'll read you what he goes on to say. The purpose of your life It's far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams or ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? But focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. And so Jude says, now, listen to me, now, to him, to him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he writes, As I read that this week, I thought, oh, that's a really beautiful metaphor, right? God is able to keep me from stumbling. But I sat on those words just for like a minute or two, and all of a sudden, they started to bother me because I was like, hold on a second. If he's able to keep me from stumbling, then why do I stumble every single day? Like, I stumble every day into sin. Every day I stumble into saying the wrong things. I stumble with, with wrong motivations. I have this pride in my life, right? Like, we've all got our unique sins, and each of us stumble every day into sin. And so I got to thinking, like, why does he write this? Because we all stumble every day with sin. But then I, reading the context and, and thinking about it more, I don't think that's how Jude wants us to understand the metaphor. So let me f- frame it up for you with an illustration. It's Father's Day, so let's think about a father walking hand in hand with his son. I've done this with my son or or daughter, but the father's there with his child and they're going on a walk. 
And if you remember when they were real little, they used to just grab us by the finger when they would go on a walk with us. So you just imagine a father on a walk with their son or daughter, and the, and the little child reaches up and grabs the father's hand, and they're walking along. And the son trips and stumbles and falls down. Gets back up, grabs his father's hand. They walk along some more. Trips and stumbles and falls again. Reaches up, grabs his father's hand. But this time he looks up and, into his father's eyes and he says, Dad, this time can you hold my hand? So the father places the son's hand inside of his hand. And now the little boy is secure. And now the father will keep the son from stumbling. I think Jude wants us to understand his metaphor, not in the day-to-day sins of our lives, but in the eternal security that we have in the hands of the Father. Nothing can ever remove you from the hand of God if you have, in a spirit of humility, said, I believe in you, I trust you, and I'm giving you my life, I'm putting my hand in yours. This is the metaphor Jesus himself gave us. In John chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You can never fall out of the hand of God. That's what Jude wants you to understand. He will forever keep you safe and secure in his hand. You can't stumble. You can't fall out of your Christianity If your hand is placed in God's hand, he won't let go. So Jude wants to finish up his letter and help you see the glories of your salvation and help you understand it's not about you. If it's about you, then you're forever letting go, aren't you? But the glories of your salvation are that your hand has been placed inside his hand and he will keep you and he will never let go. So to him be all the glory and all the praise because it's all about him and it's not about you. So he says, um, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So one day, Jesus is gonna present you in heaven before the throne room of God. You'll stand there in all the glory of God and Jesus will present you to the Father blameless, faultless, sinless, You say, how is that possible? I have a lot of faults. I have said a lot of shameful things. I have thought a lot of shameful thoughts. I've done a lot of shameful things. How is it possible that I could one day be presented before God blameless? And again, this is the glories of our salvation that that Jude wants us to understand. The Apostle Paul writes about it this way. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. He goes on to say, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The glories of our salvation is that Jesus said, I will take all of their sin and I will bring it onto myself and I will die on the cross and I choose to take their sin onto me and I choose to receive the penalty for the sins that they've committed and you know what else I choose? I choose to give them my righteousness. I choose to give them a blameless, faultless record so that one day I can present them before the throne in heaven as blameless, faultless children of God. And he says, and I do it with great joy. We get kind of messed up sometimes as we imagine what God is like up in heaven. 
Sometimes a popular idea is that God's up in heaven and he's angry at us. That God looks down from heaven and he's shaking his head, disappointed with us and just wondering why he saved us. And we have this imagination that creates this picture of God up in heaven. But let me just read some scripture for you this morning to inform your imagination about what God might be doing up in heaven. Because it says in Jude that he's going to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It says in Zephaniah 3.17 that the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we should look to Jesus, who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. What that verse tells us is the glories of our salvation, that Jesus, we all, I think, are familiar with the pain and the suffering of the cross. And it says he despised that suffering of the cross. He despised that shameful cross, but he went to the cross with joy. It means Jesus, our Savior, looked into the future and he said, you know what, I would go through, I would endure the shame and the suffering with joy if it meant I could present you and you and you and you before the throne one day as blameless. So Jesus looks down from heaven and he sees you and he is filled with joy because he knows that one day he is going to present you blameless before the throne. We might want to just um, have a fuller imagination of God in our minds that is informed by scripture. He does this with great joy. Do you believe that? Because I think it will affect you to the only God. You see, Jude could have stopped there and it would have been great, but Jude's like, I got one more verse. I'm not done expounding on how great God is. He says, to the only God. Now, as we elaborate on this point, you might think this is kind of elementary. Like, I got it. I understand there's only one God. I think it's an important note to hit, though, because you and I live in a very pluralistic society. And as much as we strive to, to keep biblical thinking, I guarantee you it seeps in, it creeps in. So let's just make the point that in the midst of a pluralistic society, God is exclusive and he is the only one. He's the only one who can keep you from stumbling. He's the only one who can present you blameless before his glory. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, I get it. I don't have idols in my house, right? Maybe, and some people do that live in our communities. But maybe you're saying to yourself, like, I don't have idols in my house. I don't have a sacrifice that I put things, I, like, I don't have, I have one God. I have God, that's it. I only have one. Before you pat yourself on the back too much, we have to remember the annoying little words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says this, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. So, you and I actually probably have an idolatry problem that we have uh, been ignoring or naming as a different thing. You see, when you covet something else, Paul says, that's, that's the same sin as idolatry. So you say, oh, like, if I had, if I had that salary, oh, that, that would make everything right. If I had that body, that would make me happy. That would give me fulfillment. If I had those friends, if I had that house, if I had that popularity, if I had that power, 
I had that power, it would keep me from stumbling. There's only one God who can keep you from stumbling. There's only one God that can forgive you every single time you sin against him. There's only one God. There's only one who will love you unconditionally. There's only one who will never leave you nor forsake you. There's only one who will never break a promise to you. There's only one. There is only one God. And he is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I think these words are important because what Jude is doing for us is he's saying he is our Savior and our Lord. He is both things simultaneously. He is our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is Savior and Lord. And if you pay attention closely to the words you hear from the pulpit week after week, is you'll hear us regularly referring to Jesus as, as our Savior and our Lord. We stack those words on top of each other because Scripture stacks them on top of each other. We also do it because there is a tendency to, um, to separate the words. There's a tendency in the human heart to say like, okay, well, you know, I, I want you to forgive me. I want you to be my savior. Forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. I would, I would rather not obey you. I would rather live my life how I want to live my life. But I'll gladly receive your forgiveness as savior and be my own Lord. And so what we try to make very clear at Northgate Church is whenever we talk about it is he must be simultaneously Savior and Lord. You do not have the option in Scripture to remove these. He must be both. There's only two ways to live. I can live my way or I can live Jesus' way. So my way is to reject Jesus as Lord and to trust in myself. And that results in death and judgment. But Jesus' way... He is the way, the truth, and the life. Submitting to Jesus as Lord, trusting in his death and resurrection, the result of that is, is forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. He must be Savior and Lord. He is the only God. Is he your Savior and your Lord? What I've noticed as I've talked with people, it's, it's easiest to get them to admit that he's the only God. And then it's second easiest to get them to admit as Savior. They want forgiveness of sins. And it's the hardest one that we struggle with, isn't it? To get people to believe that Jesus' way is the best way. And to live as though he is the Lord of their life. Jude goes on to say, May he receive glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Jude is so excited as he's writing, he just starts writing words that describe down, God down on the paper. So let's, let's differentiate the words a little bit for a moment. Glory. To him be glory. So glory is a word that can be ascribed to, to humans. It's most appropriate to be ascribed to God. But it is a word that says we're going to honor this, this person for who he is and what he has done. Let's just talk for a moment about who God is and what he has done. We could spend and, and will spend eternity talking about who God is and what he has done. For the sake of time, let's just summarize, let's just hit some highlight reels. When I was a kid, it was ingrained into me and it's still with me today, three words to describe who God is. I was told he is omnipresent, he is omniscient, and he is omnipotent. 
Omnipresence means he is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. Omniscience means he knows everything. And omnipotence means he is all-powerful. So when I think about who God is, I think he is a God who is everywhere. He is a God who knows everything, and he is a God who is all-powerful. We could highlight from Scripture that he is also perfectly just. He will judge wickedness and evil. He is set apart. He is holy. There's no one else like him. He is set apart from sin without sin. He is faithful. He can't break a promise. He is love. He is patient. He is kind. We could go on like this for eternity. That's who he is. What has he done? Where do we start? Scripture tells us that he created all things, and all things are held together by his power. So I don't know where we start here. Um, He made the sun rise this morning, and he will make it set this evening. He put those clouds in the sky a few days ago. He caused the grass to grow this morning. He created all things, and he holds all things together. How do, we, how do we get wrap our heads around this? Let's just try and think about one thing he created. He created the sun. With just a word from his mouth, he created the sun. The sun, which every second, every second, our sun converts about 700 million tons of hydrogen into approximately 695 million tons of helium, as well as 5 million tons of energy. That is about 386 billion billion megawatts per second, one second of sun energy, could supply the United States with enough energy to last nine million years. One second of sun energy could supply the United States with enough energy to last nine million years. That's one star. He spoke them all into existence. There are, they guess, maybe 20 million trillion stars in the universe. His glories go on forever. Who he is and what he has done. To him be glory, to him be majesty. So interestingly enough, if you go look up the word majesty in the original language, it was originally written in Greek and we translated it into English, the word sounds like this, megas, which is mega sports camp, right? So God is mega. God is mega. That is what Jude has told us here this morning. He is mega. He is great. He is awesome. He is marvelous. Majesty makes us think of a king, right? He is the king of the world. He is sovereign over all things. The word dominion, it just simply means power. It's a fancy word for power. He has glory, he has majesty, he has power. All the stars in the sky don't even begin to touch his infinite power. He has authority. A lot of people in the world have power, but they don't have authority. That's what happened with Russia and Ukraine. But what Jude is highlighting for us is is God has all the power and he also has all the authority to exercise that power. Well, why does he have that authority? Because he created all things. Because he created you, he created everything. And so he is the owner of all things. He has authority over all things to exercise his power, his majesty, and his glory. As we wrap this up, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe that? Do we believe that he's glorious and majestic and powerful and has authority? Because if we do believe that, it will have implications on our lives. So as we try to apply this truth to our lives, let me just give you one application point for you. Um, This is one that that I need and, and maybe you need as well. If this is true, if we believe that he is glorious and powerful and has authority, 
then I think what it should do for us is it should turn our, our negativity and our pessimism and our cynicism around to trusting in a holy and a powerful and a glorious God. Here's the trap I fall into every week, sometimes every day. Here's a conversation that plays out. Gas is expensive. Food prices are high. There's no workers. The recession is coming. Our country is going down the toilet. We are losing our freedoms. Look what's happening to our schools. Who can you trust? It's corruption in politics. It's garbage coming out of Hollywood. Everyone is pushing a secular, godless agenda. I could go on and on. You know how that conversation goes. I believe we've all been involved in them. So negative, so pessimistic, cynical. I feel like we as Christians, I myself need a cold splash of water in the face to say, hey, Christian, you realize that Jesus has called you to be an ambassador for Christ, and Christians are not called to pessimism, negativity, and cynicism. We are called to serve and be an ambassador for the king of the world who is all-powerful. He created all things and he sustains all things. He is majestic and he is in control and he has got this situation under his sovereign control. And I don't understand it and I don't deny that it isn't difficult and sinful and corrupt. But we serve a God who has things under control, so we might need to turn off the news, we might need to set down our phones, and we might need to turn down the dial on our pessimism and remember to turn our eyes upon Jesus because he has been this way before all times. He is this way now, and he will be this way into eternity. You see, we as Christians, we, we believe that he was that way in the past, and, and we have hope that he will be that way in the future. It's the now that we struggle with. See, we look to Scripture, and we don't have a problem saying, like, in the past, he was powerful. Yeah, in the past. Matt Major, two weeks ago, he reminded us of the story of David, how God anointed David to be king. God's anointed. God promised him, you will be king. And then David ends up being hunted by the sitting king of Israel, living in caves. But he's able to write in, uh, in Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David models for us that even in the midst of difficult times, you do not have to let pessimism and negativity reign in your hearts if you trust that God is sovereign and in control of all things. And guess what? God kept the promise to David and he became king. The children of Israel were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. God promised them that he would set them free to their promised land. He liberates them from Egypt through the ten plagues and then they come to the shores of the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them and they have a wave of negativity and pessimism and cynicism about the situation that they're in and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. He keeps his promise. They go through on dry ground and he brings them to the promised land. He keeps his promises. In the past, he does. In the future, he will. We have John's vision of heaven in Revelation. He sees a vision of heaven. He says, this is what it's going to be like in the future. We're all going to gather around the throne of God and this is what we're going to say. With one voice, we're going to say, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. We gather here together and we say like, yes, God was powerful back then. Yes, God will be powerful in the future. And somehow, sometimes we struggle with the right now. And so Jude says, listen, now, 
now, right now, now to him who is able, now. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. Maybe you're up against a Red Sea. Maybe you have financial pressures. Maybe you have a family crisis. Maybe it's health issues. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. I don't know what it is, but what I I do know is that right now, you're listening. And right now, the word of the Lord to you is that God is able to keep you. God is able to keep you from stumbling. God the Father has reached out his hand to you, his child, and said, oh, my child, put your hand in my hand, and I will keep you, and I will present you one day blameless before the glory of God. What will you do? Will you reach out your hand and put it in his hand in faith and trust that he is powerful and glorious and trust in him? I'll close with this illustration. Thomas Dorsey lived from 1899 to 1993, a full life. He is now known as the father of black gospel music. He was also very influential in jazz and blues music. It was in his, uh, early in his career where he came to trust in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He started writing music for the church as well as for the jazz and the blues nightclubs. He was 32 years old, living in Chicago with his wife. She was pregnant with their first child. He took a call to go to St. Louis and lead music for a revival. He led the music at the revival in St. Louis, came down from the stage, and he says as he sat down, they passed him a telegram that read that his wife had passed away. He rushed home to Chicago as quick as he could, and he was able to hold his newborn son in his arms until the next morning when his newborn son passed away. Thomas Dorsey was just flooded with grief. It was the dark night of his soul. For days he lived in dark despair. And one of those days he sat down at a piano and he wrote these words, these words that were sung at Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral and and other noteworthy people have had this song sung. It says, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. I don't know much else about Thomas Dorsey's life, but I don't need to know much else other than this. God answered his prayer, because that's what God the Father does. When his children call out to him, he reaches out and he kept him. And it was in 1993 that Jesus pulled his hand up into heaven and he presented him standing before the glory of God blameless. And he will do the same for you in whatever trial you're facing. with us today, giving God your praise as we close. One last time, Jude 24 to 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.